Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss the question, can psychedelics make you feel worse? Well, first we defined what is meant by worse. We discuss preparation, navigation, and integration factors that can affect the outcome of a psychedelic experience. We'll list some contraindications for psychedelic use, explore the relationship between suffering and meaning, talk about neurophysiological reasons. Some people sometimes feel worse after psychedelics and much, much more. If you're listening to this show and you're looking for good training and education pursuant to becoming a psychedelic therapist, check out Numinous's training programs. You can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash hour dash training dash selection and use the code PTF10 for 10% off selected trainings. And of course, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to the show. It's on most podcast players, a little button that you press to subscribe or follow the show. You can leave us a rating and review in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can share the episode with somebody you think might need to hear it. Without further ado, here's our conversation today about whether or not psychedelics can make you feel worse. Welcome everybody back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. It's just me and Reed today. How you doing, Reed? Pretty good. Thanks, Steve. How about yourself? I'm also doing well. Uh, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you know, occasionally we record on Riverside. I'm here in this dark, tiny dungeon that is the spare room in my basement. Um, I'm envious of Reed's setup. Looks like you have an actual window, maybe, and some plants. Although I'm in a fishbowl in my house that's right by the entrance to the house. So I see everyone coming on my left outside and then inside it's two glass doors for everyone walking by in the house. So I'm getting waved at a lot. (laughs) So if you hear like, you know, some footsteps or, you know, some child's children's voices, you'll know that Reed and I actually have lives and families. (laughs) In fact, one of my uh, twin teenage boys just walked by and he spread open this wad of dollar bills, um, a good size one, because he was out doing his window washing business, uh, knocking on homes in the neighborhood, (laughs) making it rain. There you go. Good for him. A little entrepreneurship. Well, um, today, uh, the topic for today was, at least for me, was inspired by a question that I've received from a couple of, a couple of clients lately. Um, and that is, can psychedelics make me feel worse? Like, can they harm me? We talk so much about the, the healing potential of psychedelic-assisted therapy, the growth potential of psychedelic experiences. Of course, we've talked a lot on the show about responsible use and ways to prevent the so-called bad trip. Um, we've also talked about how psychedelic medicines are also a roll of the dice often when you, you take them. And in spite of all your good preparation, you're sort of at the mercy of this plant intelligence or fungal intelligence or, you know, compound this chemical and how it interacts with the human mind, which even though we study a lot, we need to be humble about the fact that we don't fully understand all the variables here and therefore can't predict or completely control. So I thought it might be useful for us to just sort of riff on this today, read about this question. Can psychedelics actually make me feel worse? You know, I can answer that question or those two questions and make this a very, very, very brief episode if you want. Uh, Can psychedelics make me feel worse? Yes. Um, And can psychedelics cause harm in some cases? Yes. I mean, 
I'm being facetious and that all goes without saying, but, but, uh, it's worth, uh, diving into and dissecting together for sure, because there are many varieties of the difficult experience, even those with, you know, positive growth on the other side, even if it's, uh, a bumpy road full of a lot of hard work and somewhere um, due to whatever um, forces at play, it, it causes harm and, you know, has a net negative outcome or maybe shouldn't have happened. Um, and a lot of uh, everything in between and a lot of nuances of how hard it is to figure that out sometimes when you're in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good points. So maybe we can unpack this this uh, feel worse part of the question. Like, what do we mean? Maybe what do our clients mean? What might a person mean when they say feel worse? You mentioned the challenging experience or sometimes referred to as the bad trip. So the nature of the psychedelic experience can be very, very challenging, right? Um, sometimes we experience a loss of, of our sense of self. We experience time dilation or shift. We can have open eye or closed eye hallucinations or visuals. Our bodies can feel weird. People talk about the come up on some of these medicines, sometimes being uncomfortable or, or agitating. Um, sometimes the content, the emotional content or the uh, phenomenological content, the memories, the visions can be of a distressing or even disturbing nature, especially for people seeking healing from trauma. They might be encountering old memories. So all these things can be unpleasant, but, uh, and someone might say results in a bad trip that could be possible. But like we've talked about before, it could also be that this is important content to, to process, right? To deal with. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Sometimes it gets uncomfortable so that it can get better. So that's just one point I wanted to throw out there. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, reactions, disagreements. <laughs> Maybe a, uh, a little comment on the bird's eye view perspective of this is, um, as I was alluding to, the challenging experience is kind of hard to define and categorize because of those things we're talking about. And um, there, there's not a whole lot of data to guide it. I think uh, um, there have been some recent really important papers and talks on the need to balance the hype with uh, realistic. Uh, so the need to balance the hype with uh, the real risk of reward and risk benefit ratio. Um, like uh, one study I like to cite or reference for this kind of thing is by uh, Carbonaro and colleagues in 2016. And they surveyed 2000 people after who had a, um, a psychedelic experience. I think it was all psilocybin and, and um, I think it was maybe 10% in that survey or some other sur survey uh, experienced functional impairment longer than one day, and maybe 3% sought some kind of psychological assistance just for like baseline rates from one survey of one of these medicines. Hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, those, of course, are, it sounds like the minority of people who responded to surveys like that, but not, it's not zero right? It's a significant yeah. percentage that we need to acknowledge it, that this happens and, and understanding, right? Yeah, it's, it's true. And um, you're bringing up one uh, tricky part about it in that um, in this survey, like 39% rated it as one of the top five most 
challenging experiences of their life. That that is a higher number than those who had functional impairment mm -hmm. for more than a day after, right? It could have been um, one of the most challenging experiences just during that dosing session or that ceremony or that experience. Um, but then they also, it's also this sky high number that finds it one of the most meaningful experiences, right? So there's a lot of overlap. Um, those things do correlate, go together in some, not all cases, but, um, but there are some of these really challenging experiences day of, and some of these like lingering ones in the days that follow um, an even like lesser number, but important one that have acute distress, maybe even um, some, uh, you know, safety issues, medically, psychologically, um, or maybe need to engage in some uh, medical attention or psychological intervention to help with it. Right. Yeah. So you're giving great context to this sort of feel worse part of it. And I like that the surveys try to address, or uh, maybe they do or don't, but try to address the correlation between reporting this was the most or one of the most challenging experiences of my life, um, but also rating it as one of the most transformative experiences of my life. Anecdotally, we hear that from people who are, you know, they're coming out of ayahuasca ceremonies, for example. They'll say like, oh man, I don't, I'm not in any hurry to go back and do that again. That was psychologically challenging, psychospiritually challenging, physiologically challenging. You know, when I, when I tell people about ayahuasca ceremonies who are the uninitiated and I talk about purging, uh, they're like, why would, why would anybody do this on purpose? That sounds terrible. Um, but then people also reporting who say those things that it was also transformative and um, they wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. So taking an inventory, we've talked about like, sometimes you feel worse before you feel better. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's reminds me of the saying we, we use on here. Sometimes you got to feel it to heal it. And sometimes that feeling is really um, intensely difficult. Um, so you might be unearthing trauma. You might be hitting buttons, finding triggers, showing you your work, or you might be unearthing unfinished business, but, um, and that can be for the purpose of growth or um, get you in a rut that may have uh, some consequences in your life that you're not prepared for at the time. You know, that's kind of where it can go. And then another category could be physi a physiologic funk. Like we talk about neurotransmitter depletion after MDMA, et cetera. We can dive into that. Um, but there could be like a, a psychological or vulnerability hangover. There could be, um, something where you've changed in a way meaningfully and those around you, your environment, your relationships have not. And because of the unconscious or covert contracts, it's a bumpy road for a while requiring extra work and communication. Um, there, I'll say two more types. I'm just kind of rattling off <laughs> categories, but one is uh, you're sleep deprived. I think this is under underrated um, in that ayahuasca ceremonies often go into th the wee hours of the morning. Um, many people don't sleep after a uh, classic psychedelic or MDMA. Um, and there, the um, all-nighter hangover is no joke, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to tease out. Um, and there can be multi-day ripple effects. And then one more type of bad trip um, comes to mind is those where you fought it and didn't surrender. Mm. Yeah, the resistance causes the friction that leads to, to suffering. 
Yeah, the, the sleepless night's such a good point that people often forget. Um, there was a clinical trial I was part of, a psychedelic clinical trial I was a part of, where a research participant, uh, after their dosing session, experienced suicidal thoughts. Mm. And they really weren't doing well. And um, after some investigation, it was discovered that the, the night before their dosing session, they slept maybe one hour. Um, just anxiety. Yeah. You know, anxiety. You know, I have a theory that is based on observation and some personal experience, but I don't have a reference for it, is that, you know, sleep deprivation um, heightens the psychedelic experience the next day. Like if you sleep very little, um, the ego dissolution comes more easily. The, uh, the grip on reality is easier to lose. And uh, you also have less of your emotional self-regulation powers on board and you might uh kind of um lose yourself a little more easily yeah so i wonder if that's just to have fun speculating here like if you're sleep deprived you don't you're not as well psychologically resourced you don't have as ready access to the normal neural you know cognitive and emotional resources that you rely on um those ego structures are more relaxed and so make you more moldable bendable to the psychedelic experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's funny. It's reminding me of when I went to ayahuasca for the first time, I flew to another country in the jungle. I ride like a donkey. Well, the donkey had the stuff. I think I was walking to get to the retreat center, beautiful place, but I didn't plan it too well because I got off a plane and two, maybe well, maybe an hour after I got to the actual place, we were sitting on our mats in the Maloka outdoors um, and uh, ceremony was to begin. And I remember having that thought. I'm thinking of this theory I have and being like, oh, no, I'm in for the biggest first night of my life. <laughs> and uh, I even asked uh, one of the helpers who has since become a friend, I'm like, I didn't sleep more than like an hour last night. I had like super early flight too. Um, and am I going to be okay? <laughs> and he's like, yes. And mm -hmm. then we went for it. It was, uh, it was beautiful, but I do wonder how much it heightened it because of that. Yeah. You know, the yes from your friend is I think relevant data too, because a lot of people who have challenging or what feel like unhelpful or even damaging psychedelic experiences, do them without proper support, right? Or they're, yeah. they're just in the wrong setting. You know, they've, they're taking mushrooms for the first time at a festival or just with a bunch of college friends and they don't have the, the safe therapeutically informed container to hold whatever shows yeah. up. I'm sure plenty of people listening who've had uh, ex psychedelic experiences with friends or at concerts, or whatever, and have, have had fine experiences. I'm not saying that that's a guarantee mm -hmm. that you're going to, have a damaging or too difficult to handle experience in that context. But we, we beat this drum all the time because it's important that setting the context, having appropriate preparation and, and mindset, and then having a supportive community, whether that's one person in the form of a guide or a group of people that you can talk to and process your experience with can make the difference between a, a damaging or a helpful psychedelic experience. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's that survey that I was talking about, um, but the Carbonaro paper uh, done at Hopkins, 2000 people, psilocybin experiences. Um, I think the two 
uh, biggest predictors of a difficult experience were cannabis use with psilocybin and not having a guide who was not on the medicine. And it does, it does make sense because as uh, you know, as a guide, you're like, um, well, Leary um, and Metzner and Alpert in a book said, you're like ground control in the airport tower. And if always there to receive messages from uh, help navigate the course, keep people from crashing into each other or the wall um, or obstacles. And uh, the pilot is then, and passengers are reassured to know that there's an expert who's guided thousands of flights there helping them navigate. And uh, understandably, if you take um, a high dose of a classic psychedelic um, or lots of other things for that matter in a place that is very anxiety provoking um, or unpredictable. I'm thinking like at a party where you don't know the people or the setting, um, then uh, you can see how the rate of difficult experiences can skyrocket. Um, and in fact, I used to work doing psych, psych consults in the ER. This is Utah's biggest hospital. I'd be in there every day seeing um, all sorts of psychiatric uh, um, needs, but uh, there were commonly um, kind of drug intoxications that came through the ER and there weren't, psychedelics were not very common, but occasionally there'd be like a young person who took their first LSD in the bad, in the wrong place and, you know, got confused and went running down the street or something like that. Right. Right. So you mentioning the ER made me think of uh, other people with certain psychiatric needs that might not be great candidates for psychedelic use that could also, you know, that if take, if, if they take psychedelics could have a, a damaging or destabilizing experience, right? There's a reason why in most of the clinical trials, they rule out people with psychotic disorders or even a family history of psychosis uh, or people with like bipolar disorder. If they've, if they've had a manic episode recently, um, certain personality disorders are sometimes ruled out. And I'm not saying that that is absolutely uh, the thing to do or that psychedelics couldn't be helpful for this, for people who struggle with these things. But if you already have a tenuous grip on reality, you might want to reconsider uh, altering it powerfully with a classic psychedelic. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was uh, recently working with the, Psychedelic Medicine Association um, to on their new educational resource and course for psilocybin prescribers, especially in Oregon. And uh, I helped write the the safety section, the contraindications included. And um, I think the first two are worth mentioning because you brought them up as one, like a, a present suicide risk that would make it quite risky to embark on something with uncertain uh, outcome. Um, you know, that would be a reason to look extremely carefully at the support around it or only proceed with like the best support in place that you could possibly cobble together uh, very thorough informed consent and where, um, you know, a very careful evaluation of risks and benefits has happened. Number two would be current diagnosis of any psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, major depressive disorder with psychosis, um, where these two things, um, 
you know, the consensus is that it's just a no, you don't proceed with, with uh, a classic psychedelic therapy session. Um, it's not to say it can't be done, not to say it can't be helpful. It's just the risks in general and our best assessment right now seem to outweigh the benefits. It needs to be a very careful individual case-by-case -case evaluation. Yeah. yeah. And it does make sense conceptually, right? If you have a brain that is, that is already beset by entropy, right? If it's already chaotic and then yeah. you use a tool like psychedelic that ten, tends to increase entropy, tends to increase chaos. I mean, chaos loosely defined, but at least flexibility, then yeah, I mean, it could make things quite a bit worse. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so the, the medicines matter too. Just while we're on that topic, um, I like to uh, geek out on like the neurobiological view of this as well. Like um, how are um, psychotic experiences like hallucinations generated in the brain and the way they, they show up from ketamine or from uh, psychostimulants or from psychedelics is quite different. Um, so if you take uh, or, and it's different from what happens in the brain of someone with schizophrenia, but say you take a, a high dose of a psychostimulant, and this is something I saw quite often on the psych consult service um, and uh, often had, uh, you know, really bad outcomes from their experience because the mechanism is not a, like a psychedelic um, serotonergic activation. It's a, it's a D2 receptor, a dopamine receptor activation. There's a little more auditory than visual. And the main type of delusion is paranoid. And mm. the main type of behavior is agitated. Um, and it doesn't come with the built-in insight of uh, like psilocybin with its mystical experience. It's, it's really fascinating that two different chemicals even made in a lab can create two different flavors of psychosis on such opposite ends of the spectrum. And I'm calling a classic psychedelic psychosis just because it's a non-ordinary state with the loss of uh, some of the same features of reality. Um, but um, compare it to psychedelics where you have 5-HT2A receptor activation as one of the main things, more visual um, than like auditory hearing some voice telling you to do something. Um, and you have more mystical and not not paranoid by a theme and more insight that comes with it. So um, I think, and we could go down the list and tease them apart, but that's kind of two ends of the spectrum of, of brain pathways to get here. You mentioned that uh, people with schizophrenia or psychotic disorders, they come by their psychosis or delusions different, even compared to those two things. Is that what you were saying? You know, um, so to complete the, the list of meds, I think it'll make sense a little more on the schizophrenia um, with a caveat that's not fully understood. This is my, my take and my off-the-cuff summary, but um, look at uh, ketamine and even PCP, which PCP predated ketamine as an attempted anesthetic that made people extremely agitated, sometimes violent. Um, not everyone, but but it was way more than later things like ketamine, hence the search for ketamine um, because you didn't want people coming out of an OR thrashing. Um, but so ketamine is an improved, much improved version of that, but 
Um, the it's NMDA receptor blockade as the main thing. Um, so the glutamatergic, uh, uh, the glutamate system. And then uh, you get more visual than auditory, like uh, the classic psychedelics, but there's more of a mix of delusions. It's, it's almost like agnostic or um, a lot of it depends on what is coming in one end, what you're bringing into it. Like we've talked about in our, in our ketamine uh, therapy experiences, clinical experience here. Um, so then uh, the behavior on ketamine is more social withdrawal than um, compared with psychedelics. And there's some insight, but it's less built in. It's less of get out of the way of the medicine, as we've discovered, even though ketamine can be very mood lifting. Um, so you look at schizophrenia, how does that come to be? And this isn't a, an attempt to describe how it works, but the, the mechanism is something more like the D2 receptor activation and the NMDA receptor blockade that you get from both psychostimulants and dissociative anesthetics combined into one, not the 5-HD2A activation with the mystical. Um, but the main difference, practically speaking, that I think with schizophrenia is, uh, is that it doesn't go away. Right. Mm. And it's not something that um, that you sign on to and, you know, has an arc and an end, even though we forget that sometimes we freak out on a psychedelic experience. But in in schizophrenia, a psychotic break could occur that could go on for days, weeks, months even. And the stance of in the in the culture of the medical system and most individuals is to fight it. Yeah. Right. Right. Important distinctions. I'm glad you went through those. Um, similar sort of medical considerations. I know that one thing we've talked about is HPPD. Uh, in, in the context of can psychedelics make me feel worse or do harm? Um, what? Sorry, I lost my notes. HPPD. Yeah. So what, what can we tell folks about HPPD? This, uh, I always forget the exact acronym, but it's like hallucination, persistent perceptual mm -hmm. disorder. Is that right? Um, Almost hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. Um, and like per the, I think it showed up first in the DSM five. I think I, I could be, um, no. Yeah. Because in the DSM three, it was post hallucinogen perception disorder, mm -hmm. kind of closer to what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, but I think like a basic definition would be something experienced after cessation of intake of hallucinogens where you re-experience certain visuals that were experienced while on the hallucinogen. Um, right. And there are two main types in the literature, like type one would be the flashback type or benign HPPD. Uh, some might call it free trips because you have this, I mean, some might call it terrifying and horrible right. still. Um, but even if it's short term, but these are short term reversible benign course um, without a ton of distress impairment. If there is a ton of distress impairment and or longer term, it's type two or pervasive HPPD. Um, and it's not very common. Like this is, there's a lot of uh, urban legend and myth around it. Um, but but there it's important to note that there is it is a real phenomenon there are 50 papers describing it mostly case reports or case series and it's been reported across 
so many different medicines, not just classic psychedelics, but getting into like Datura, Salvia, um, ketamine, DXM, uh, mm-hmm. cannabis, synthetic can- cannabinoids, even one case with an antipsychotic that I saw. Yeah. I've only ever had one client who had type two. Um, this was a guy who'd been to his fair share of festivals and raves and just done a lot of mostly psilocybin and LSD. And so he had, uh, he had tracers, you know, every time he'd move his hand or there, an object would move through his field of vision. It would have tracers, um, fairly psychedelic tracers, according to him. You know, it's a, it's a tricky thing to, um, assess from within the brain that is thinking about it and experiencing it and looking out through our own neurons that we're trying to describe and look at, you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, there are visual trails. Like you wave your hand in front of your eyes right now, there's a trail. If you do that on a psychedelic, your mind is blown. You're like, whoa, there's a trail behind my hand, but it's there, right? I know there are other experiences that like they're pronounced, they're halos, there are wavy edges of things. Um, But HPPD, um, the best that the research field has been able to figure out is it's due to a similar like mechanism. Like it's, it's this intermittent disinhibition, disinhibition of some visual processes that are normally inhibited. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's occasionally turned off or there's a little bit of a leak and a trippy perception thing comes out because you just had a, a wild time with all your neurons communicating with each other. And, and that all went back to normal, except once in a while, especially when triggered by some like very stimulating event that can bring on HPPD. Right. You know, sometimes um, anecdotally people will talk about what maybe, maybe falls into the category of that first type where they'll have a flashback of sorts, but it's usually associated with sleep. Like it's either hypnopompic or hypnagogic hallucinations, but very, very much hallucinations uh, that are like an echo of their state. You know, what's interesting is uh, one of the other triggers um, for HPPD is a dark environment, which Mm -hmm. also makes sense. And interestingly, many, most ayahuasca ceremonies take place after sunset in a dark environment in or outside, not all. Um, And uh, that certainly, um, if you've been through those kind of experiences, uh, I think contributes to um, some of the trippiness right? Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, other things like sexual intercourse, um, stress can trigger it. But one big thing that you hear from a lot of guides doing underground psychedelic work is that cannabis or other psychedelic usage can bring these things back. Um, Like uh, people often counsel their um, clients post 5-MeO DMT or BUFO sessions that be careful, cannabis may bring this back. Um, or after ayahuasca, next time you have mushrooms, be careful. It might feel like you're on ayahuasca again. Right, right. Um, so do you mind if we pivot to, the, there's something we talked about with, I think, Dick Schwartz and maybe maybe Nick Bruce a little bit, and that from this internal family system perspective of why a person might feel worse uh, yeah. with a psychedelic experience. and. I think, you know, what we talked to them about was 
if you don't get buy-in from the parts of you that protect the exiles, and for those of you who don't care about or know about IFS terminology, hopefully you'll forgive me, but um, this idea that you have internal parts that, you know, have a role to play and part of the role that they play is to protect the whole system or the psyche or you um, from having to feel certain things. So if they haven't agreed and you go take a medicine that by one way, shape or form throws the protectors into the psychic dungeon or takes them offline mm -hmm. so that you can access these more vulnerable places. When they come back online, they might be pissed and they might rebel in the form of perfectionism, in the form of self-doubt, in the form of seeking safety, in the form of big feelings. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting sort of psychological way of thinking about why you may, you called it maybe a vulnerability hangover, just kind of another way of thinking about the vulnerability hangover from this internal parts perspective that I think can be useful. Yeah. I think that's a really good one to, to point out. You might have your firefighters on high alert with their fire hoses out, ready to blast anything that comes their way. You might be um, feeling worse could be feeling at the edge of your window of tolerance and coming unhinged, not having your typical resources on board, things like that. And um, important to keep in mind both um, how your nervous system is doing and what it's able to handle um, in a given time of life, but also what's going on, adding some meaning to it to help, uh, to help you uh, ride through that. Um, in fact, that's, I think, one of the uh, one of the biggest antidotes to suffering or um, things we can hold on to is some sense of purpose in it um, and some meaning. Or if we can start to figure out what's going on and why, then it becomes maybe more uh, of a useful workout in our minds or we can see what's on the other side of it instead of just seeing it as as suffering that we've got to swat away. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, context for pain often what is often what makes it the, the difference between that pain being suffering or simply pain. Sometimes I use the metaphor with my clients. You know, if if you all of a sudden your knee hurts really bad when you move it through range of motion, that would be very concerning. You know, you would uh, oh, I've got an injury, I've got inflammation, I've got arthritis. You could have the exact same pain, level of pain, type of pain, flavor of pain. But in the context of physical therapy, for example, let's say you had ACL surgery and the physical therapist is moving your knee through range of motion, painful, but it, it's, le it's less painful, frankly, or it's more tolerable when you have the context of this is breaking up scar tissue, or this is lengthening the ligament, or this is strengthening the muscle. So it's amazing, like you say, just what mean making or context can do for the actual lived experience of pain. Yeah. You know, um, Jordan Peterson, bless his heart, um, for all his controversy out there and, and uh, all his uh, thought-provoking ideas as a psychologist um, said something I thought was profound. He said, the purpose of life, as far as I can tell, is to find a mode of being that's so meaningful that the fact that life is suffering is no longer relevant. Hmm. What do you think of that? No, I think that is profound. And I think it, it's, um, it's, it builds on what, what I just got done saying really yeah. is in some ways the human mind or human beings are meaning making machines. And we take in all this sensory data. We have neurological processes that filter out a lot 
in some ways, that's what they're there for is filtering. Um, and so it's important that whatever we do, we are, whatever we are conscious of, that we make meaning of. And a lot of times it's this drive to make meaning that can also result in self-defeating beliefs and holding on to old beliefs and being resistant to developing new beliefs. It's part of why psychedelics can be so powerful because they drastically change the filters. They drastically change this instrument through which we ex are experiencing the world that is our mind, our brain, um, so we can see things differently. But yeah, I'm at the risk of going on a tangent. But yeah, I think that's I think that is a profound way mm -hmm. of thinking. You know, so you know. um, there's there's a quote I found that kind of sums up one way of looking at the meaning making of uh, difficult things. I'm wondering what you think of it. It's from uh, H. Almas, who's a Kuwaiti American spiritual teacher who wrote that he came up with the diamond approach, diamond inquiry. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, he, he said, uh, your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic solutions in your life, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. And this is my disclaimer. I'm reading this with the trigger warning and as a, uh, thought-provoking statement and I'm by in no way suggesting that that the difficult things are all meant to be or or in any way to uh kind of um take away from the intense suffering that so many people feel and the tragedies that happen but but if you if you were to take this perspective for some of the situations it would get really interesting so he says all these problematic situations are actually yours they are specifically yours, designed for you by a part of you that loves you more than anything. The part of you that loves you more than anything has created roadblocks, obstacles, to lead you to yourself. You're not going in the right direction unless there's something pricking you in the side telling you, look here, this way. This part of you loves you so much, it doesn't want you to lose the chance. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That's its purpose. Yeah. So another one for you to react to, Steve. Well, I liked your caveat. Um, I think they're looking at the problems in your life as happening for you and not to you. To some extent is for the privileged, right? For those of us who aren't yeah. under extreme duress, that do have our basic needs taken care of. This is more sort of higher on Maslow's hierarchy or self-actualization. Self privileges that that those who like yeah. i said can't um don't have but that being said um this is a way of thinking that can be so useful for those of us who are stuck in what some would call the victim mentality or for those of us who are stuck in what one of my clients called the other day a pity party <laughs> or when we're hyper fixated on the bad things then it's easy to lose hope. And it can be really constructive and growth promoting to look at the challenging things in your life and, and go through the exercise of trying to find what you can learn from this. How can mm -hmm. I use this pain? How can I use this struggle to grow? Because most of our impressive character traits are developed on the other side of struggle. So, you know, you have these idioms like don't let a good failure go to waste, um, fail, your, fail yourself, to success, you know, um, things like that. I just, I, I do want to try to hold a balanced perspective between those who might say, 
you know, suffering is a gift. It's all about grit uh, because sometimes that belief will, will actually do the opposite for people. It's like, oh, it's all up to me. It's all my fault. Uh, and then they start beating up on themselves instead of developing confidence and courage. Yeah, that's the art of it, isn't it? The tricky um, part of all this is, uh, is, well, maintaining that perspective, that growth mindset, but also, um, yeah, not not spiritually bypassing or in other way bypassing and um, keeping an open heart through it, be, but still being in it, right? And still acknowledging how it hurts and um, how some suffering is just is just terrific. Um, so um, can I uh, throw one more quote into the pile, then I'll stop quote bombing you because this is Ram Dass's to round it off. Yeah. Um, so I love this first part. Something in you dies when you bear the unbearable. In other words, you go beyond just the horror and pain of it because it takes you beyond it. You can't bear it, and it's only in the dark night of the soul that you're prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. It is the horrible beauty of the universe and to realize that there is a wisdom inherent in it, and that wisdom includes suffering and that all suffering is actually not all an error. Until you are resting in a place that understands that, it's quite presumptuous to think you know best. I've watched the work I do with people that are dying, when, where they suffer and suffer and suffer. And if I could, as a human emotional heart, I would do everything I could to take away their suffering. It breaks my heart that they're suffering. And I watch as the suffering burns its way until they finally give up because the suffering is so great. I've watched as they give up. Something emerges in their being that is so beautiful, so radiant, so spiritually innocent, that it's like they meet a part of their being that has been hidden away all their lives. It's like an egg being cracked open. Ramdas. Mm. Yeah, it's an evocative quote. And it, it reminds me of something I haven't figured out, but contemplate is just that paradox of mm. pain, like that paradox of suffering, of it being just simply part of human existence, but not perhaps by accident, perhaps an integral part um, on purpose, right? He references God in there. So I can't say that I have it all figured out, but I do feel like the joys that I experience, kind of like I was saying before, that are on the other end of endurance, that are on the other side of long suffering, are just, they taste better, right? They're, they're more exquisite <laughs> joys than the more passive ones or the ones that are granted to me that I didn't quote unquote earn. Um, now if the universe is listening, I'm, I'm, I'm open for submissions of boons that I didn't earn. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm happy to receive joy that seemed unearned, but, uh, but yeah, like I said, haven't figured it out, but I think there's lots of profundity in there. Yeah, it does. Uh, what you're saying makes me think of the whole idea of yin yang. Um, mm. one of the great kind of, um, paradox symbols, I would say, um, because the dark nights produce bright stars, for example, and suffering and joy may be two sides of the same coin or our ability to experience hard things may actually influence our ability to feel the positive as well in a, a widening of our container kind of way. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's the darkness that gives the contrast to the light, like with the stars quote that helps us really learn the dimensions of that thing. So yeah, the night is darkest just before the dawn. I, I like to throw in, throw in idioms that, that we have for a reason, right? They exist because there's some noetic truth. There's some really deep truth to the phrases we come up with that we repeat often. Some of them are bullshit, but a lot of them are good too. Yeah. Um, well, I thought we might touch on one more, or maybe you have more than one more, but um, reasons why psychedelics might make people feel worse that you can then mitigate. I think you referenced it earlier, but you know, sometimes because of what happens in the brain to neurotransmitter receptors or levels of neurotransmitters as a result of taking a psychedelic, you can have a bit of depletion going on or exhaustion of certain receptors. So there are strategies that some people use, for example, with MDMA, where they can minimize the post MDMA blues by taking certain supplements. And some of these supplements have some research support. Other supplements are more anecdotal, less research support, but uh, uh, read your doctor. So you might have more authority than I do to speak on this, but I, I certainly have heard of certain antioxidants that are help to help mop up free radicals that can help like it. Yeah. ALA and vitamin C, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's, uh, um, a good question, a good example of that physiologic funk um, to look at. Um, and important to note that in the MAP studies, where everything is kind of as controlled as possible because of the research study, there is not a vitamin mineral supplement uh, program as part of the protocol, right? Um, and one reason is because uh, that is thought to be much less of an issue in a study or clinic situation at the careful doses that are used in say map studies, like up to 180 milligrams total max of MDMA on a dosing day uh, spread at least three weeks apart. Um, that's very different than what people take at a club when they're consuming a pressed tablet of say ecstasy with um, could have two or 300 milligrams of MDMA in it, plus a bunch of other crap, often psychostimulants. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't really know what you're getting. And sometimes people would take more than one of those, which is wild. So you could see how you're exponentially getting into territory, but, but to end of uh, needing some uh, supplementation after, but um, to, to give a brief uh, answer to your question, the, the supplements that many people take that have been, kind of based on whatever evidence is available are often for neuroprotection, like alpha lipoic acid, acetyl L-carnitine. Um, uh, there are electrolyte strategies, of course, to reduce the risk of serious uh, dehydration, hyponatremia. Um, some people take magnesium to reduce jaw clenching, anecdotal, but a lot of, a lot of it is mostly neuroprotective, uh, except maybe Ginger has some nausea prevention, um, and uh, 5-HDB, you know, may help in a slightly different way, um, theoretically, in the come down. Is there any concern about if you, you were to take 5-HDP too soon after a psychedelic that you run the risk of serotonin syndrome? Yeah, that's why it's not in. So there are a number of um, 
organizations that sell vitamin um, mineral supplement packs for people as a harm reduction measure. And mm -hmm. uh, I think these are great organizations like RollSafe donates a, a pretty sizable percentage of profits to MAPS, rollsafe.org, where they give information and they sell vitamin kits that aren't that expensive. And they just tell you which ones you can go buy on Amazon if you want. Um, but they most often do not include 5-HTP and the, the debate around it is, is often um, centered around or landing on a consensus of starting it after the session, like the day after to help with uh, next steps because that theoretical risk of serotonin syndrome, that being said, I've never seen or heard of a case of serotonin syndrome from like a, a regular dose of MDMA and a sup, supplement dose of 5-HTP. And not to say it's not, it hasn't happened. Yeah. Well, those are the things I've heard too. And even with psilocybin, you know, I think maybe the post-psilocybin neurochemical blues are less common than with MDMA. And I'm not saying that because there's good data on that, just anecdotally. Uh, but yeah, I've heard people have heard of people taking 5-HTP a day or two, like you said, after a psilocybin experience to help offset potential serotonin exhaustion. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I'll also point out that there's, there's another school of thought that, um, where people take 5-HTP in the days leading up to, um, mm. to kind of stockpile or make sure their brain levels are optimized or at least, uh, relatively healthy. Um, but, uh, but I think most of those, um, recommendations land on like taking it for a few days after. Mm. Yeah, but that's that's uh, I think uh, a summary of of what could happen physiologically besides sleep deprivation after these things. But what would you say about post classic psychedelics or post say psilocybin um, journey ceremony dosing day LSD session ayahuasca ceremony? In terms of uh, like neurochemical or just aftercare. Either, and I know we, we don't know the answer to like a neurochemical funk per se. We know that some people feel worse for a while and we don't know exactly why, but yeah. What's your take on um, what can happen to some um, in a negative funk, whatever its origin on those ones? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we, we've, we've talked about the reasons why something distressing or uh, quote-unquote bad might happen. But I'll just say a few things. Like if, if you have a psilocybin therapy session or you go to an ayahuasca ceremony or you're just taking these psychedelics, even very consciously and cautiously, and then you jump right back into work the next day or you, know, you go right back into environments yeah. where you can't talk about this stuff or that require a lot from you, you're, you're taking a big risk. Um, so having, I use the phrase aftercare, having like an aftercare plan or to the extent that you're capable and not of all, not all of us have this privilege. Um, but to the extent that you're capable afterward, taking time to rest, taking time to recuperate, taking time to be in solitude if you need to, or, and, or around supportive others, um, as you journal, you know, we've had entire episodes, we've talked a lot about integration practices, but as you kickstart integration, 
it, it's probably important that you don't jump right back into stuff. Uh, so that's one thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, the, there are a number of these factors like surrender during the experience, um, time to prepare before, um, time to unwind, integrate, rest and recover after that I think are the basic building blocks. Sleep as much as possible without sleep shaming yourself. Um, mm -hmm. Just prioritizing sleep and then letting go of what you can't control if your mind is up thinking about um, your excitement and nervousness about an upcoming psychedelic journey, for example. Right. We already mentioned it, but I'll mention it in this context, like uh, maybe avoiding other powerful mind altering substances like cannabis or alcohol, or, uh, I mean, if you prescribe something like Ambien for sleep, I suppose you could take your Ambien, but, um, yeah, just be careful about how you, how you mess with this sensitive instrument after it's been, uh, been put through the ringer on a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I'm just thinking of, uh, Jack Cornfield's quote and book title after ecstasy, the laundry, which I mm -hmm. think sums up a lot, right? After enlightenment or, or an experience of enlightenment, um, chop wood, carry water, just like yeah. before. Right. Yeah. Well, excellent points, Reed. Anything else that's top of mind that answers this question or, or address this question about uh, you know, these so-called feelings? I think just some prudent optimism like there's a lot to be excited about, right? Mm -hmm. And it's equally important to consider um, the upside potential and how to uh, manage risk, optimize the experience with, like we talked about screening, community prep, integration, how to mitigate suffering and adverse events as they come up, how to support people in the best way after, um, how to say no for those where the risk is just too high, given the best state of our knowledge and the best honest truthfulness we can share. Um, and then uh, and then we can really focus on this aim that we all share of the alleviation of suffering, the betterment of humanity, um, using these agents like um, often some that come from sacred age-old traditions in in healing and spirituality um and so yeah i'm uh i'm uh very prudently optimistic and uh motivated to keep um studying and shining a light on this stuff with you steve well well said and me too thanks reed thank you psychedelic therapy frontiers is brought to you by numinous a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. 
Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.